This is Emma LeCavalier, the Deputy Editor of Global Policy Next Generation, and you're listening to the Global Policy Next Generation podcast. I'm here at the Earth Systems Governance Conference at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, and I'm speaking with Dr. Sandra Chen. Sandra is a political science researcher at the German Development Institute, or DIE, in Bonn, Germany. His work is actively engaged with issues of transnational climate governance and is working on a fascinating project which builds a database tracking mitigation and adaptation initiatives by non-state and subnational actors. Sander, could you briefly define, first of all, what we talk about when we're talking about non-state climate actors? So for a very long time, uh, when we talked about um, climate uh, policy and climate politics, we often think of government. And um, the n- term non-state actor is actually a very broad term. It would uh, include businesses, uh, investors, uh, NGOs, but also cities and regions, uh, sometimes to their chagrin because, because they don't see themselves as non-state. But the reason why we use the word is because it comes from the, the kind of climate negotiations world where it refers to all actors that are not around the table at the negotiations and uh, what these actors have in common is that they all can uh, somehow contribute for instance to the implementation of the outcomes that come from these uh, uh, negotiation tables. So it's a very broad term but you could easily subdivide the term non-state actors by yeah, all these components, businesses, actors, cities, yeah. So given all this action, how do we currently measure that? How do we take stock of that? And what challenges might we face when trying to understand its meaning for global action on climate change? So first of all, there's a lot of actions. Uh, there's a register at the UNFCCC, uh, NASCA it's called, that currently registers over 12,000 actions by uh, non-state and subnational actors. So there's a whole lot, and this number is increasing, and this is by itself already quite impressive. But uh, of course, it's not only about the numbers. The question is also, um, how do we make sure that these uh, actions are really actionable, <laughs> and 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 whether they are really delivering? Uh, so that is the reason why we also built this database, because a lot of research is already out there that kind of takes stock of what the promise are, what these non-state actors are promising, uh, especially in terms of mitigation. Now you can add that up, you can look at you know, what are the overlaps between the different promises and for instance when cities produce mitigation actions and, and, and lower their emissions, maybe that will be counted at national level as well, so you have to really take into account all these overlaps. But in the end what we're doing is we're aggregating these promises. Now we know from social psychology, for instance, what is typical about human organization is that we don't keep our promises often. (laughs) Um, So uh, what we're trying to do by tracking climate action in our database is to find out what is actually happening in terms of activities. So uh, our promises, uh, for instance, to lower emissions or to uh, take adaptation actions, are they followed up by outputs, by tangible products that are logical in the light of of the promises they make. So we can be pretty sure that if there's only a promise on the table, say to reduce uh, greenhouse gases through uh, new installations, then we can assume that if there's no new installations that 
there won't be any effect. So we defined a lot of functions and output categories and we collect data on that and we match uh, these data sets to understand over large uh, sets of uh, non-state um, commitments to, to understand, like, do they meet the minimal criteria even before we talk about environmental impact? And the problem with, yeah, if we only are adding up promises is that we get this inflated understanding of what is happening among, uh, among uh, non-state actors and their actions. So I believe it's really important to track it also at the output level. Um, and uh, output also predicts better what possible changes in behavior might be or changes in environmental indicators. So we are now taking that extra step towards understanding impacts on climate change, for instance, and impacts on climate adaptation, uh, impacts in terms of uh, emissions re reduction, but also improvement in so social quality, for instance. Mm. This is interesting because I heard you at this conference mention some of the sort of on-ground work that you're doing with yeah. that effort. And you said you were doing a case study in Kenya and India and soon to be possibly in China trying to track these these actions on the ground. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're finding about non-state climate action through those case studies? Yeah, so th this is a new project that doing together with uh, partners in Kenya, uh, the African Center for Technology Studies in India, uh, uh, the Energy and Resources Institute in New Delhi, and uh, Blavatnik School of Government in um, uh, at Oxford University. So this is a collaboration. And I think what is good to note about this collaboration that we really strive for equal participation of research institutes uh, based in Europe, but also in the countries we're interested in. So this is a collective effort in which we try to understand what is going on in terms of uh, engagement of non-state and subnational actors in these countries. The problem at the moment is that if you look at these international databases, these registries uh, at the UN, for instance, partnerships for SDGs or at the UNFCCC, for instance, NASCA, is they, they show a lot of action, but if you look actually at who participates in these actions, you see enormous discrepancies between actors. Uh, there, there are, for instance, very few initiatives that are led by actors that are based in the global south. Mm. Uh, and also in terms of participation, uh, you see many more cities and um, NGOs and businesses from, say, Europe uh, than, than Africa. And this is a huge problem if you think about the climate crisis where most future emissions will come from developing countries, from developing and emerging countries. And most impacts are already felt in uh, developing countries. So we need effective action in these countries. Now, we note that, you know, there's this big discrepancy between North and South Indies uh, existing international databases. It could be a reflection of uh, the fact that there are mi less actions in the global south, but uh, we cannot take that for granted. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, policymakers, but also researchers, we like to focus, for instance, on the role of big businesses. But a lot of big businesses happen to be headquartered in North America, some parts of Asia, uh, and in Europe. Um, so the fact that we limit our, our, our view of climate action 
protection to these types of actors, these large multinational corporations, that limits the scope of our research, but also of our understanding of climate action. Uh, and and we, we have kind of some initial um, evidence that in fact a lot is taking place in terms of climate action by local businesses, by small and medium enterprises, by counties, by cities in Kenya and India. And what we're trying to do is to find out what is going on. And we are surveying, for instance, all counties in Kenya and all cities above a million inhabitants in India uh, to find out also under which circumstances uh, do uh, subnational actors, for instance, engage in climate action. In this sense, I think we're trying to build the the, the, the knowledge base and also collect the data that we haven't had before to understand what is going on in the global south because non-state action is i believe not something that should be owned by actors based in uh, north america or europe and we don't have definitive findings yet uh, because it's an enormous um, task to collect the data to find out what is going on like we're not going there and asking businesses or small holding farmers, do you do climate action, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of these actions are not called climate action, uh, but they might still, you know, take adaptation measures at the community level. But how do you uh, find that out? So for that, we need to devise a lot of techniques to collect data in multiple ways through surveys, through interviews, through focus groups. And that is uh, what we're currently doing. It sounds like an enormous undertaking, but really interesting. Um, I know you said it's still ongoing, but I am going to push you to speculate a little bit about maybe some of the conditions you think have been conducive to supporting non-state climate action at any level. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we talk about non-state actors, but uh, that doesn't mean that the role of governments mm. uh, uh, is not crucial in all of this. So we see, for instance, that the, the nationally determined contributions, the promises that governments have put on the table under the Paris Agreement, that a lot of African governments, for instance, have referred to uh, the need for uh, non-state uh, stakeholders to step up action and also to help uh, these governments realize their goals. So there, there is kind of, you know, this, this when governments really commit uh, to engage these actors, that absolutely helps uh, and that also signals to these non-state actors that they, they can be a part of the national climate targets, for instance. What we also see is that um, across the global south there, there are more and more initiatives to equip non-state actors that might not yet be taking action but to equip them with the awareness, the knowledge and also the examples in order for them to do, to take that action. So, for instance, in Latin America, there's uh, an initiative called Action Lag, and they, they hold uh, webinars uh, for all types of non-state actors. And I think, uh, you know, at the moment they are holding one and there's, uh, I don't know, like 600 uh, people participating in them. So these are all 
willing actors who consider climate change as a problem and they want to act, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so there's really uh, very encouraging things happening across the global south that does that does help to strengthen and stimulate um, a voluntary action among non-state actors. That's interesting that you're saying the government is an important stimulator for conducive conditions. Um, I guess I'm wondering if there's an elephant in the room here that we've been talking a lot about in this conference, which is the ways in which government might suppress those conditions as well. I mean, we, we see elections in Brazil right now, and, you know, Bolsonaro in, in office um, being very sort of anti-climate action. You see this, I mean, it's not unique to, to Brazil, obviously. We see it in the States, we see it elsewhere. So I guess I'm wondering um, how resilient can non-state climate action be in the face of maybe unsupportive government at a national level? Well, this is a question that we engage with very much in our research because uh, what you saw, for instance, right after the announcement by President Trump uh, to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, the the most prominent uh, reaction you saw came uh, from the cities, from the states, from the universities, from uh, the businesses who declared we are still in, and that's also the name of the initiative, mm-hmm. right? So, so in a way, non-state action can be part of that resilience in politically turbulent times. However. We have to remain critical about the role of non-state actors. Like I said, it is not enough to look at what they promise and what their good intentions are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is also really important to understand like, how genuine are these promises? Uh, how are they uh, followed up with? Because that determines uh, to what extent non-state action could contribute to the resiliency in politically turbulent times. At the same time, I also feel like, for instance, in the U.S., uh, there's really like a reinvigoration uh, among non-state actors, among all types of actors to step up action as also almost a kind of uh, resistance, right? Mm -hmm. So it might be uh, that somehow uh, this wave of of, of populism and kind of post-truth politics might also have an unexpected uh, mobilizing uh, effect. And that can be a hopeful thing. But like I said, we need to see whether, you know, the hope is is granted, whether, uh, you know, commitments are uh, followed through. Uh, on the other hand, in Europe, for instance, uh, we're also dealing with populism, uh, of course, in, in many countries. However, I don't see the same type of resistance coming from below, uh, this kind of spirit we are still in, or, well, Europe is not pulling out, but, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, we need to be more into uh, the futures that we, our governments have committed to, zero carbon future, which is hard mm-hmm. to imagine, right? And uh, in Europe, for instance, we really need to, well, I would say governments need to give a chance for businesses, for investors, for uh, cities to get to understand what they have committed to, Mm -hmm. right? And to give them a chance to adapt to that future. Uh, And this is something that happens much too little in Europe. So uh, I I think this whole groundswell of uh, climate action kind of uh, reveals a lot of 
the externalities of our politics, right? Because mm. uh, the EU is, uh, likes to present itself as a climate champion, mm -hmm. but maybe that also feeds into a certain complacency where uh, you don't see the same energy and, and, and willingness of, you know, uh, actors to stand up against their government and take climate action nonetheless. Mm. Well, I think that's the first we've heard on this podcast of the optimistic takes on post-truth politics that they might have a silver lining in that catalytic effect on on ground swells of support for climate action. So we'll take it. It's nice yeah. to hear. It's nice to hear that. Might. Might, might, might yeah. right. Yeah, it's not a prescription. It should be clear here. Right. Well, thanks for speaking with us, Sonder. And we look forward to seeing the rest of your research as it emerges. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Global Policy Next Generation podcast with Dr. Sonder Chan, a political science researcher at the Deutsches Institut für Entwicklung Politik, or the German Development Institute. Sonder has also, since the recording of this podcast, announced his candidacy for the European Parliament as a member of the Groenlinks or Green Party of the Netherlands. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us, feel free to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or find us in the iTunes store. You can also find us on Twitter at GP underscore next gen. If you or someone you know would like to be featured on our podcast, drop us a line at next.generation at global policy.com. Thanks for listening.